Hey everybody, just before we jump into the first episode of our second season, we want to take a moment to say that we hope that you are safe and healthy wherever you are during these unprecedented times. This episode was recorded this fall, but we think you'll find the perspectives here insightful in navigating life in the coronavirus era. From our entire team here at the studio, thanks for listening. Now, onto the show. I was going in and out of consciousness. Like, the one thing I remember is, like, I was raised Catholic, so one of the priests from my college said, you know, would you like to receive your last rites? And I'm not particularly a very religious person, but I was like, you know, like, if I'm going to die, like, why not? College is a time when many of us celebrate our youth and invincibility. Pulling all-nighters, gorging on pizza, partying with friends, and if you're a little crazy, sometimes you start a podcast. But when you fall deathly ill, all of that falls away. In confronting your mortality, you're forced to reevaluate your identity, your values, and the people that matter to you. Seven years ago, as a freshman in college, Jesus experienced this firsthand. As he was getting back on his feet, Dr. Bornstein was there every step of the way. I'm Viknesh Kasturi. And I'm Alex Homer. And this is Back of the Chart. After a few weeks of constant fatigue and hunger, partnered with extreme weight loss, Jesus decided to visit the campus health center for what he thought was going to be a routine visit. The woman who was at our front desk came around the corner and knocked on the door and said to me, the patient you're going to see next, he's gone to the bathroom six or seven times. And I said, okay, thank you. And I knew it was a male patient coming, and so I figured, well, if it was a female, I might think about a UTI, but that's not really common, urinary tract infection. That's not really something you see a lot of in in, in males. So I kind of got the, you know, the clue there, and then uh, when... Jesus said to me, I just don't feel, you know, don't feel right. I don't have any appetite. And I'm, I said, are you eating a lot? And he said, I'm eating all the time. And have you lost weight? Yeah, I've lost weight. And so we put together that constellation of using the bathroom a lot, losing weight, being hungry. Um, and we checked a, a blood sugar right in the office with a, a machine, a portable machine. And it was so high it was unreadable. It was off the chart. And so that was was fairly simple. Type 1 diabetes is uh, when your pancreas kind of just shuts down and your pancreas doesn't produce insulin anymore and it can't break down glucose. So anytime that you eat carbohydrates, like the sugar just stays in your body and starts to poison you. The symptoms that we mentioned before is what happens and can ultimately lead to death. Over a long period of time, if you don't control yourself, you can go blind or have uh, limbs amputated because the circulation in your blood but yeah, most, most people get it when they're very young. It's very rare to get it when you're like 18. There's no cure and people don't really know where it comes from yet. Some people think it's a virus, some people think it's genetic, so it's a pretty mysterious disease. I think you're working on your endocrine fellowship. <laughs> I guess I have to know these things. Nowadays, it's obvious that Jesus knows what he's talking about when it comes to diabetes. But when he was first diagnosed, he found the process of adjusting to the new aspects of his life to be difficult. Well, most people, you know, they're diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when they're, you know, very young, like elementary school. I was 18, so I had a pretty hard time adjusting. Yeah, it took maybe like a, a year to get used to it and to be able to navigate through the life of a college student. You know, you're like stressed out. You're trying to figure out, you know, your social life. 
studies and on top of that you're always worried about will my blood sugar go down in like the middle of class I don't know so the first time I experienced low blood sugar it was something you know really frightening I had to you know keep juice around me or like glucose tablets when people are like hanging out and like eating something sometimes you know I wouldn't really think about if I don't have like my insulin pen on me then I can't really eat this and like sometimes I would since so 18 years of my life just being able to hang out and just like eat a few slices of pizza but like now if I did that your blood sugar is like 500 now I'm like what are you gonna do so and you know you're 18 years old like you don't really think about well do I want to be blind do I want to like lose limbs um, so it, it took a lot of maturing on my part and that really just came with time and like trial and error it took a lot of conversations like that for me to realize I can't be doing those things. Like, I'm not like the rest. I like to think that the 18 and 22-year-old age group that I see, I think they have a what I call a moral compass for being their most healthy inner self. So, you know, what does it mean to be my healthiest self? And I think young people have that. I think they're on their first training wheels for adulting, you know, for not having mom and dad say, do this, do that. And so I do think they have the sense of, I want to be healthy. I want to, I want to be my best. And I think that's what I mean by that moral compass. So that's fun to kind of partner up. I don't tell them what to do. I just say, here's the information. And, you know, perhaps drinking five to 10 beers, three nights a week may not be the healthiest decision for your liver or for your cognitive functioning or for your mood um, and then you know see what they do with that information dr bornstein has said this before but i'm like i'm like her son pretty much like something that like my mom would be telling me to do is like what dr b would be telling me to do your sophomore year freshman in college you don't always want to answer your mom's phone calls but you know you can't escape doctor on campus you can try but it's pretty hard to escape from dr b Soon, Jesus adapted to his life with type 1 diabetes. One day, however, he had what he thought was the flu. Fever, headache, and nausea. His condition deteriorated even further. He became so sick he couldn't go to class, and soon he couldn't even get out of bed. It was all a blur. He remembers the nurse helping him from his room to the campus health office. They laid me out on the table, and I have no idea what's going on. I'm, I'm like, out of it. So all I knew is that you hadn't been very, feeling very well and that you'd had the flu and that campus safety and security had brought you down from your dorm room and brought you into the exam room. So I walked in and I, I knew you from before. And one of the nice things after you've been in medicine for a while is you can, you know, from 50 feet away, you can look at somebody and you know, and I knew you were really sick. I could just tell. So I went over to go check your blood pressure and heart rate. And as I lifted up your sleeve to look that's when I saw you had the petechiae which are those purple spots everyone is just terrified that's when I like, started freaking out I was just like well there's something wrong and then everyone just starts putting on masks I don't get it I don't know what's happening it's pathognomonic meaning it's just I knew right away that that was meningococcemia which is means that the the bacteria that causes an infection in the lining of the brain gives those very specific spots. So I knew it was seconds, and yes, I was terrified. Somebody called 911, and I was put on a stretcher and then like brought to the emergency room, and I was brought to Rhode Island Hospital. So meningitis, which is an inf infection of the lining of the brain, when it's caused by Neisseria meningitis, which is the bacteria, 
even in the best healthcare setting in the world, the mortality rate is still 10 to 15%. And the morbidity rate, meaning that there's some complication with often a long-lasting result, is 20 to 30%, which can be deafness, blindness, amputations, cognitive changes. So I knew we had really very short time to get him to the hospital right away, and and that's where he went. Neisseria is a really crafty bacteria, and the way I like to think of it as, whereas your regular head cold virus is um, has a, has a way to mutate and be kind of clever how it it uh, fools your immune system, but Neisseria is the king of that. Neisseria is has its own SWAT team of all kinds of um, equipment that it can get that it invades your immune system and and is sneaky and gets around it and hijacks your immune system um, in a way that the regular head cold virus doesn't. You know, this is one of those things that's a on a scale of one to ten. It's what really strikes a ten in in you know at least in in our hearts as far as being an emergency that you you really want to take it really seriously right away. So including the fire rescue as well as anybody who was in contact in uh, in classes or in, in uh, extracurriculars, uh, there are really specific uh, guidelines that CDC has about contacts. So um, And you receive an antibiotic prophylaxis so that you are protected from it. And best is uh, not to go without a mask when you're when you're with a patient who's got meningococcemia. Once Jesus arrived at the ER, they inserted a needle into his spinal canal to sample his cerebrospinal fluid, which cushions the brain and spinal cord. That sample confirmed what the doctors feared. Jesus had bacterial meningitis. He spent the next few weeks in the ICU, pumped full of antibiotics. At one point, Jesus received his last rites, which are given to Catholics on the verge of death. When he was in the ICU initially, he was on medications called pressors, dobutamine, which keep your blood pressure up artificially because he was so sick. And I knew that he had a really, really difficult road ahead of him if he was going to survive. And I was prepared, I think, mentally that that might not happen. Uh, but he did survive. And when he got off the dobutamine, I, re- I remember every day calling and seeing what was going on. And I went to visit him. Um, he he doesn't remember, but I remember being there when he was getting his last rites. And um, I remember just being, it was like jubilation. I'm like, you know, young person on dobutamine, this is just, you know, un, incredibly rare. And he did, he did well. Um, he got out of there and he had a lot of, uh, a long road ahead of him. What a long haul. You know, you feel really helpless. I was under, you know, so much sedation that I like knew what was going on but at the same time like I couldn't like process any feelings so I like had the thought in my mind you know like I guess I could die right now but you don't feel sadness you don't feel happiness because you're just like on so many drugs like I can connect emotions to it now but like in the moment it's like a very surreal feeling where I was uh I like wasn't in touch like with what was going on I I didn't know what was going on. I was like in and out. Um, I was on morphine. I was on like you name it, like anything to just, you know, keep me out. And eventually they got my fever under control and uh, 
you know, they start taking you off the medicine. And, you know, I wake up and that's when, like, I saw my parents and I saw, like, my brother and I just saw their faces and I was like, what happened to you guys? <laughs> like, they just looked, like, exhausted. Like, they looked like, like, they just, like, ran, like, a marathon and, like, didn't sleep, didn't eat. They, they were just, like, so happy to see me. Like, my parents, both of them were, like, crying and, like, you know, they were really happy to see me awake because I basically wasn't around like when all of this was happening like my I was I wasn't conscious so for the first like month it was like just my family and then like the thought of me like living or, or dying you know the people who survive you don't know if they're gonna like be blind you don't know if they're gonna be deaf you don't know if they're gonna have cognitive issues but thankfully you know I'd, I don't have any of those things I didn't have any of those problems like the only problems that I ended up having were um uh, lesions uh, uh, that ended up forming on my on, on my legs. When an infection spreads into the bloodstream, the body releases antibodies into the blood to fight it off. In the process, this can cause inflammation and sores on the skin. After he woke up, Jesus had to have his legs cleaned by the hospital burn unit. I just remember like laying on this like metal table, and I couldn't move still. And they take the wraps out, and I just look at my legs, and it was it was just horrific. Like, it looked like somebody just, like, burned me alive. I couldn't believe, like, what I was seeing. You would ask every time I would visit, I need to get back to school, when am I getting out? You would ask every time, even at the very beginning when you were just barely conscious. You would always ask that. It's just something that I owed to my parents. You know, my parents decided to come to this country, you know, for my brother and, and for me. They wanted a better life for us. What any immigrant does to sacrifice, you know, for their children um that's the that was the one way that i could ever repay them for everything that they did it was for me to finish school and um, be you know like somebody who's educated you know somebody who can stand up for themselves stand up for other people And then when you did get back to school, when this new semester started, which was, I thought, Herculean effort, you, you know, you had a full load and you didn't tell any of your faculty what had gone on. So you had some trouble just ambulating and getting places um, and nobody knew. And you, you know, you had this incredible grit and determination <laughs> not to let anybody pity you or baby you or give you, um, it was, you know, at, at times maddening because I wanted you to tell people so they would cut you some slack and, you know, at times it was agony for you walking to class and you didn't tell anybody. And, but I couldn't, unfortunately, I couldn't violate your HIPAA right to privacy, but I knew that you were getting docked academically by professors who had faculty who didn't know. Yeah, I guess uh, coming back to school, is, that was a whole nother, like phase of my life where I had to figure out how I was going to live my life again after, you know, this happening to me. Because you're not the same person afterwards, physically, psychologically. So I had to get used to who I was and, like, kind of get to know myself. So that was kind of where my relationship with Dr. B really began to, you know, form because, like I mentioned, I had five surgeries all over my legs. Uh, and one of my feet, I had a, a wound vac. 
So what that is is a um, pretty big hole like at the bottom of my left foot. Well, it was to help drain, help drain some of the the fluids from the inflammation and the infection, and it was just it was a constant battle. I tried to walk as much as I could. Every day I would come back to my dorm and like I would just look at my feet. My feet would just be bleeding, but I had to come and see Dr. B every single day because she would soak my feet. And you know it was just there where we just got to really know each other. I would just sit there and like my feet would be soaking and then we would just like have conversations about like just random things. Where like at the beginning of the semester it was, it was kind of strange to just have like somebody just like soaking your feet and like and like wrapping your feet up and then afterwards it was kind of like I got in there I would like throw my backpack on the ground and be like hey Dr. B and then I would just sit down and like take my shoes off. I just remember our visits I remember thinking you like you're like the little engine. You just keep you, you know, you just had grit. That's all I can tell you. And uh, it was a peaceful time as well for me to just slow down and sit and, and be in your space with you. And and uh, you're always just easy to be with and gracious and, and weren't, you know, you were, were, even in your vulnerability, you weren't inviting me in for a pity party with you. That was never what you were about. You were always about you know, let's, you know, move forward, let's keep going. And that was so admirable. And I remember hearing you the first time you played guitar in the bar on campus. And um, I knew you played, but wow, you know, talent. So it was really neat to see these other aspects of you and your creativity, and it was really fun. Over time, you kind of thought to yourself, I really can't do this without this person. I started to rely on Dr. B a lot which was something I thought is really special about her, where she invested not only her time, but like a lot of her uh, emotional energy on me. I feel like when you see someone in their most vulnerable state, that's like when you can form like the best relationships. It went beyond the superficial relationships that Dr. B would have, like maybe with a patient who comes in and has like a cold. And those are the kind of patients that you see a lot of. You know, if you want to be a, a doctor, then it's a huge emotional investment, and this is something that every patient deserves. The hard part is to set some boundaries so that you don't let your emotions, if you're having empathy or compassion, you don't let those emotions cloud over your clinical side of your brain that has to be making the right decisions. Um, with the patient and the patient's family determining what it is they what's the most meaningful and what's the right decision for them. But I'd like to think that when I see a patient that I'm going to treat them as if they were my family member. What would I do if this were my son or my daughter or my... And that informs some of how I speak with people. Um, I had thought at one point I was going to do oncology and um, uh, a mentor dissuaded me and I'm forever grateful. Um, and I, my first job was in attending in the special immunology unit before protease inhibitors. And that was heartbreaking work. This was in the you know, 90s with, on any given night, you know, maybe 18, 19, 20 admissions and two-thirds of them end-stage AIDS patients. It was heartbreaking. And I knew from that, state, from that stage how hard it was to lose my patients that... Um, I, I didn't think that would be the right venue for me. So I think you have to base it partly on who you are and what your strengths are. If you're a real introvert and you really don't get energy off of being in the room with a patient, then maybe pathology is the right 
or radiology, you know, I think those are, but if you can find this compassion, and I'm not really even sure where it comes from sometimes, um, I, I'd like to think that there's some almost divine source about it, where, how it happens. I wish I could tell you there's a magic formula for it. I think it just is there. And I think it's that privilege of being in someone's space um, that informs how much you let yourself feel for them, but don't become incapacitated with uh, sorrow for them, because you can't do that either. She healed me in many other ways than just wrapping my feet. Is it every day like some words of encouragement, you know, like how are your classes going? I would vent to her like it's like really hard, but you know, I'm like going through this, like I'm gonna finish, like thing things are going along. After that, things got better. Like my feet healed. The following semester I saw her a little less often. And when I would see her, you know, it would the the visits would uh, were a lot less uh about, you know, my feet healing and more about, you know, like, how are you feeling? Like, how are you doing? Like, I want to make sure that you're okay. And just to have someone around on campus uh, when you don't have, you know, like your parents. And uh, it's something that I'm like beyond grateful for. And I, I consider myself very lucky. Really, uh, truly, honestly, I, I couldn't have made it. I couldn't have uh, probably... I probably would have had to drop out, go home or do something if there wasn't somebody to soak my feet every day and wrap my feet every day and make sure that I was okay. Um, if somebody like that wasn't there, then there would have been a day where I just wouldn't have gotten up and I would have just called my parents and I would have just gone home. And who knows where I would be right now. I remember um, I turned 21 when I was in the hospital and uh, Dr. B came with uh, Kathy Kelleher, the, the nurse at Providence College, and they brought me like a little like cupcake. Those are just things that I'll like remember, like, you know, like my entire life, you know. There are just so many people that just like weren't there. And you know, for somebody that you barely know to just come and do something like that for you, it's, yeah, it's, it's really something that you don't forget, like ever. We'd like to thank Dr. Bornschein and Jesus for sharing their story with us. And of course, we'd like to thank you all for listening. Next week, we'll be hearing a fascinating story about a GI case that started out as an innocuous phone call and ended in the emergency room. If you like this podcast, please subscribe wherever you're listening right now and share with your friends, family, and colleagues. And if you love this episode, please give us a five-star review. It really helps new listeners find the show. Back of the Chart is executive produced and hosted by Alex Homer and Viknesh Kasturi. Our producer is Sierra Fang Horvath. Our editor is Neha Mukherjee. And our patient liaison is John Lin. Our graphics are designed by Juliana Kim. The music in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to faculty and staff at Brown University for making this possible.